A domestic flight left Idlewild Airport in New York, New York at 11.52 p.m. on January 5, 1960. It was headed for its final destination of Miami, Florida. However, the 29 passengers and five crew members aboard the DC-6 would never make it. This is the story of National Airlines Flight 2511 and the series of unfortunate events that led to a tragic situation that remains unsolved to this day. You're listening to the Mysterious Brews podcast, and tonight we bring you the case of National Airlines Flight 2511. Welcome to a deep, dark, dank, moist basement somewhere in Georgia. <laughs> I'm your I, host, I, I don't Arlo. <laughs> and the moron that you hear in the background is the one, the only, Coach. Look, I, I, I'm sorry, but the word moist just makes me laugh every time. I didn't know if it was moist or if it was the dank that was well, No, me. it's moist. It's okay. just a funny word. Moist. Moist. There's it's, a lot of people that we used to work with. It's one of those words that you can't say like a man. You can't, no, you can't, you can't. say moist. Like, moist. There's another word for, it's a great Zach Galifianakis joke about one word you can't say manly. You can walk into a convenience store and just be like, yeah, let me get a six-pack of Bud, a can of Copenhagen, some beef jerky, and some Skittles. <laughs> That's awful. <laughs> it's just you can't say moist like a man. It's just a. It's a. It's a. The most important question of the day is, what are we drinking? Well, this is a New York flight. But it ends up crashing in North Carolina, and since it's easier to get North Carolina beer, we actually drink in the one and the only Dale's Pale Ale, which is a wonderful, wonderful pale ale. It originally was brewed, it's, it still is, but it's originally brewed in Colorado, but they opened a new brewery in, uh, it's Brevard, in North Carolina, Brevard, Brevard North Carolina. Yeah, Brevard. Funny story. I, uh, I'm actually a... Um, Brevard alumni? No, I am a certified brewer. I was a home brewer, and I took some courses. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah. I took some courses to be actually become a certified brewer. I actually did my training at Oscar Blues Brewing Company, which is what makes Dale's Pale Ale. And what a funny story is, is when my training was done, I sat up at their little um, tasting room, and I was sitting there drinking beer, as it were. And there was a man sitting next to me, and he asked he asked me for some beer recommendations, and I told him, I was like, hey, man, Dale's Pale Ale's really good. Uh, Ma, uh, Mama's Little Yellow Pills is an excellent pilsner. I said, but stay away from this beer called Old Chub. It sucks. And he was from Old Chub. Don't drink Old Chub. It is probably the worst beer I've ever had. And he said, okay, thank you for your recommendation. I'll try Dale's Pale Ale. And I'm like, cool. About 15 minutes go by, he has his, he drinks his beer, tells me goodbye, leaves. Bartender's like, hey, do you know who that was? And I was like, no. He's like, that's Dale. That's the owner of the brewery. Dale's Pale Ale? Yeah. Oh, thank God. <laughs> so thank God I told him how I really felt about his old chub. <laughs> I was very embarrassed, but yeah. Well, uh, it's not every day a man gets to tell another man about his old chub. That's very true. But I did. I told him how I was not a fan of his old chub. <laughs> Don't know if you know this or not, sir, but your old chub sucks. But 
Dale's Pale Ale is a wonderful is pale ale, and it is from North Carolina, which is actually the tragic end to our case today. With that, we However, will get into... Well, no, oh, no, I'm no, sorry. no, 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 no. We will get into our we're not shout-outs get, for our five-star reviews. We're not getting into our case yet, because we received a five-star review on the iTunes, which I think needs to be discussed. Now, we're not. this is not going to become a habit of ours. To discuss every review we receive, but we have got that one, one star review that we reviewed last week. But this one, we got a five star review that I think needs to be referenced. It's from a man named Nighthawk, which, if you've been listening to our podcast, you know Nighthawk is referencing our uh, fourth episode. This is our sixth, but this will be referencing our fourth episode where I said that I missed out on being. You know, the cool nicknames, and I really wanted to be called Nighthawk. So, a man named Nighthawk posted, I love all the topics. I really respect the fact that Arlo is so supportive of people with special needs. Partnering up with a co-host like Coach, a man that clearly has special needs. I applaud your patience. Now, (laughs) so... Some would be offended by that, but I think that is hilarious, and I have a sneaking suspicion of who that is, but he swears up and down that it wasn't him. It's funny because um, (laughs) I just want everybody out there to know the struggle's real. (laughs) Look, we we all know that I discussed last week that I was a mouth breather. Even if this was a uh, prank review, I do appreciate the five star and... I would have to admit that it's it's fair as well. I it mean, is fair. <laughs> I it do. Is fair. I will say that if you were I going do, to leave us a one-star review after you listen to our sixth episode, I would more than willing be willing to take your constructive criticism. I don't no. think we're one star by any means. But I say we're at least a three star. Oh, yeah. We're easy. Like three and a half, four. But I do work with special needs children, and I love that job. I've got one. It's the greatest job of all time, and I I Every see day that I almost I see that almost as a compliment. But the man who I feel is responsible for that will not admit to it. So if right. it is a genuine review, I we still do say I still say that's fair. <laughs> we do appreciate it. I do try my best, but all right now, okay, our case is. Flight 2511, and the crash scene was in Bolivia, North Carolina. It's, it's just this. We originally decided to do a case, but didn't find enough information on it, so we're actually going to we're going to shelve that. We're going to shelve that for a while and blend it with a a few other cases. But this was brought to our attention by my lovely wife, and neither one of us had heard of this. No, and it really blew our minds. Like. And there is an actual local ghost story that um, transpires at the exact time that the crash occurred. Uh, People say that if you visit the crash site that you can still hear airplane engines. I would like to go see if you can. Because I'm willing to, I I would be willing to go see that one, you know. You're willing to go there, but you're not willing to go to Corpswood? No. But you're not willing to go to uh, North Georgia to the body crematorium. I mean, for the dude, the, the crematorium in Lafayette? Yeah. yeah, no, I'm not willing to go to that. No way. 
You can't give me shit about going to Corpsewood if you're not going to go to the crematorium. Dude, it, well, if for anyone that's not uh, familiar with that case, there was a crematorium in Lafayette, Georgia, that simply was not cremating any of the Or bodies. burying them. They weren't burying them. They weren't cremating them. They simply were dumping them in a lake and giving their families, like, urns full of sand. That. There's a lot of pissed off ghosts up there. If there's any, if there's such a thing as ghosts. They're there. Bingo, bango. They're up there. All right. With all of that said, we will now get into the nitty gritty. Okay. Let's get into this case. Now, it is National Airlines Flight 2511. And it was a domestic flight from New York City to Miami. Correct. That just happened to blow up midair on January 6, 1960. Well... And there's actually some some actually more uh, strange events that happened before that. It was supposed to be 100, 105 passengers were waiting to board the flight uh, from Idlewild Airport to, uh, which is now, Idlewild is actually called JFK now. And they're going to Miami, Florida. The flight is usually flown by a Boeing 707. However, on that morning, the ground crews found a crack in one of the jet's cockpack, co- uh, cockpit windows. And said it would take eight hours to replace the glass, so the plane was grounded. And this is it was in the '60s, so, yeah, so please keep in mind this is a prop, yeah, two prop airline. The plane was replaced by two backup planes from reserve, which were loaded on a first come, first seated basis. One, the Lockheed L-188 Electra turboprop plane, carried 76 passengers, and and they reached Miami safely without incident. The second was a Douglas DC-68, 68B, I am, I'm sorry. It was a four-engine plane described as being in good condition and had accumulated 24,836 hours of flight time. The remaining 29 passengers boarded this plane, along with five veteran crew members. There were two stewardesses. There was Captain Dale Southhard, 46-year-old. He flew bombers for a ferry service during World War II. His co-pilot was R.L. Hensel. 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 32-year-old. He had been with the National Airlines for six years after serving five years with the Air Force. There was a flight engineer named R.R. Hallickson. Sorry. 35-year-old. He had been in National Airlines for seven years and served on a B-29 bombers in World War II. And that is the crew. So, Well, the flight plan... Basically said or stated that it was supposed to fly south from New York to Wilmington, North Carolina, where it would continue south over the Atlantic Ocean and then continue south for 550 miles to Palm Beach, Florida. The crew maintained radio contact with uh, National Airlines radio controllers and air traffic controllers, reporting clouds and instrument flying conditions. The crew checked in with the Wilmington Airport at 2.07 a.m., and later reported flying over the Carolina Beach radio beacon at 2.31 a.m. However, at 2.31, this would be the last radio contact with the airplane. And once that happens, once the radio contact is broken, about minutes later at approximately 2.40 a.m., a farmer living 2.5 miles outside of Bolivia, North Carolina, named Richard Randolph, was woken up by his wife, who had heard a noise. He, he describes hearing a plane engine cutting in and out and then states he heard, quote, 10 doors and windows ripping off. Then there was a big boom like dynamite. 
He looked out the window and saw a small flame, which went extinguished after about five minutes. Strangely, he returned to bed without investigating further. Several other residents in the area reported a similar experience, but apparently no one went out to investigate. They all simply went back to bed. Now, uh, Mr. Randolph actually finds the wreckage in one of his fields, and this is a testament to how rural this area is. He actually finds the wreckage in his field. He drives to Bolivia, North Carolina, which had the nearest telephone. Let that sink in for some of our younger listeners. That was the nearest telephone to his house. That is, that, that is amazing. It is amazing. Oh, it's almost unthinkable at this point. In um, this day and age, with every single solitary person on this planet having a cell phone on their, in their pocket, it, 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 it boggles times. the mind that someone would have to get into a vehicle and travel to a payphone or a phone of any at sort. Any type of phone. Uh, once he gets to the phone, he calls the Wilmington Airport and reports a down plane. This is approximately 7 a.m., and then he heads back to his farm, and when highway patrol officers arrive, he leads them to the crash site. Mm. Now, here's the uh, the bad situation of basically the bodies and the wreckage was scattered over a 20-acre area. Which, I mean, that's not to be... Uh, no, it, explosion surprising. In, no, but the explosion in midair. Crashes. This covered farm, well, his do, farm fields. Do, do we know it's an explosion in midair? Oh, no, we, we don't. don't know We're that. just making conjectures. We're making assumptions here. But anyway, uh, the bodies and the wreckage are in farm fields, marshlands, and pine forests. Uh, during the first day, the investigators would locate 32 of the 34 people on board. One of the missing bodies was actually later found at the main crash site. And now that, that, we mean, get into they, the these, last one. I mean, these, well, I don't know. Let's talk about the bodies found at the site. These bodies were found between 12 and 18 inches embedded in the, in the soil. I mean, that means they hit hard. Yes. To, I to mean, penetrate you're, soil you're, 18 inches, I mean, you hit it at a very high velocity. Well, most of these victims were still seated in their airplane seats, which means they were buckled up. Strange occurrence was many of these victims were wearing life vests. This suggests that passengers knew there was trouble prior to the actual crash. And one of the other odd situations, and this will be a, I don't know, you could probably say a WTF. <laughs> well, yeah, we've already experienced a few. We, yeah, we, just a few. We just hadn't noted them. We just them. hadn't noted them, you know. I'm, I'm thinking we're on number four. Yeah. Uh, this would be the fourth one. A part of what a newspaper reported at the time being a portion of the wing, basically a fragment of aluminum, was found on Curie or Cure Beach, 25 miles from the rest of the wreckage. Now, that that would suggest that it wasn't simply a crash, but something occurred in the air. The bodies being in the soil 18 inches, I mean, they had to be, I don't know, free fall would not account for that. We get into the Civil Aeronautics Board having to be called to do the investigation. And the Civil Aeronautics Board is part of the Department of Transportation. Correct. Basically, they're the FFA investigators that you see now. The wreckage, like any other airplane wreck, was taken to a nearby hangar, which happened to be the Wilmington Airport, where they try to reassemble it. 
with what they find and then and fill that, in with. And that, they're actually going to request the FBI disaster squad to come out there and take a look at it. Yes, and they recovered approximately 90% of the fuselage. Um, and they they were also able to identify 80% of the victims. It states in some of the research that the investigators were able to identify the point of origin of the disintegration as an area immediately head, ahead of the leading edge of the aircraft's right wing. The material co- recovered at Cure Beach, which you know, as news reports stated, was a portion of the wing fillet, was from the general area where the investigators thought it exploded or disintegration occurred. Correct. Um, They were unable to recover material from an irregular triangular-shaped area just above the leading edge and extending forward of the wing. And this was a... When researching this, Mini-Me was extremely grossed out at the fact that they took the bodies to a local high school gymnasium to await autopsy and identification. Anytime a natural disaster occurs, that's one of the first places they take because anybody in the town knows where the local high school's at or knows where the local school's at. So that is a good place to set up a triage. Yeah, small town. Everybody knows where the high school is. I mean, come on. Yeah. The local coroner, which is Brunswick County, North Carolina, ordered autopsies of the passengers and the crew to determine the specific cause of death for each one. One of the victims was a vice admiral of the United States Navy, retired, and a recipient of the Medal of Honor who served in both world wars, and his name was Edward Oric McDonnell. Another victim was the vice president of the Continental Bank of Cuba, a pharmacist, a student from the University of Miami, an insurance adjuster, eh, and then three victims who had been on standby but had their flights canceled due to other extenuating circumstances. Now, at this at this point in history, you can't you can't ignore the the Cuban. No, no, not no, at all. No, I mean, no, that's no. not nineteen sixty. No, that's pretty interesting. But what's mostly interesting is the fact that they located thirty two of the thirty four passengers at the crash site immediately. The thirty third passenger was located inside the wreckage itself but that leaves us with number 34 number 34 is quite different than the rest of them it is a mr julian frank he is a lawyer from new york city and he is not located at the scene of the accident his body is located 16 miles away from the crash site at snow's marsh west of cape fear river and we will post a, again, not very good, going back to our Yuba County map. But this is a, an approximate flight plat, path of the flight, and it shows where Snow's Marsh is at. Um, and this is another WTF moment, that the flight path and then where this man's body's found and the, is just, what the hell well, happened? Well, I mean, the flight diverts. It's going from New York City to Miami, and right about the the area where uh, Mr. Julian Frank is found, the plane actually diverts and starts going back north. 
and ends up crashing. Yeah, and it looks like just east of Bolivia is the main crash site. And on the map that we will post, you can see where they care beaches at located to the main crash site and even on the map it is a long way yeah snow's marsh is actually pretty close to care beach and for all of you that are slasher film <laughs> extraordinaires it's real close to the cape fear river well in the cure beach the only a very small portion of the aluminum skin and wing were found there uh, that's 25 miles uh, from the rest of the wreckage the like 99% of the wreckage is going to be found at the wreckage site. But there's small fragments found at Cure Beach. There's Julian Frank, who's found 16 miles away at Snow's Marsh. But what's curious about him is even though he is definitely a victim of this plane crash, they autopsied all the victims, and it revealed that every single one of them died from the crash forces. But Julian, who had his body autopsied three times, and they autopsied him three times because the wounds he had were not consistent the wounds you would expect from an airplane crash. They were significantly different from the other passengers. For example, his injuries included amputation of both legs at the level of his knees, his lower extremities had been, quote, ripped from his body. Muscle tissue was extensively mutilated and torn. There was debris embedded in his body. For example, small pieces of brass, wire, and a hat ornament were embedded in the tissue of his limbs. Fingers on his right hand were splintered. Yeah, I'm going to need a, uh, she coach, I'm going to need a definition on this one. What is a distal phalanx? The very tip. Then the last. The distal, the distal phalanx. Your fingertips. The very end of his fingertips on his left hand were missing. He had multiple patches of blackened area similar to close range gunshot residue. This residue was identified as manganese dioxide. A, a substance found in dry cell batteries. Now, what's crazy is they find all of this with he where he's at. They, they find four human finger bones at the primary crash site. Are they his? I mean, someone you know conjecture, little hypothesis here would would state that that's probably a good. Good idea if he's missing four and we find four. Bingo, bango, bingo. There he is. Yeah, I mean, that that's where the evidence is pointing. Yes. Um, at the time of the crash, Frank had been accused of running a charity scam and was under investigation by the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. It was alleged that he had misappropriated up to a million dollars in series in a series of scams. And that's a million dollars in 1960. Doing our calculations with inflation, Minnie Mae says that's close to $5 million today. Uh, probably a little more, actually. But Well, you know Minnie Mae can't count. <laughs> it's a substantial amount of money. I mean, this is not a joke. I'm going to go ahead and tell you, if it was a million dollars in today's money, that's a shit ton. Yeah. I just need 250 and I'll be clear. 350 
too pretty. It is pretty pretty. Yeah, so, all right. Let's just kind of give a little review of what's going on so far. I think we've left out a lot of WTFs again. We, we, we did. We're, we're getting ahead of ourselves because we're excited. We are looking at Mr. Julian Frank as the poor bastard who is not recovered at the crash site. He is located in the area of Snow Marsh. And that's 16 miles away from the main crash site, so that would have to believe that something happened on that plane at that moment to eject him from the situation. Right, and the other thing is that the coroner was so, I guess, bumfuzzled that he ordered Frank be autopsied, not once, not twice, but three times. Three times. Three times. And it was on the second autopsy that most of the injuries were discovered, documented, however you want to look at it. Now, I had mentioned earlier that at the time of the crash, Frank was accused of running a charity scam. He was under the investigation of the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, and it was alleged that he had misappropriated, misappropriated, misappropriated up to a million dollars. I didn't even make fun of you that. In that scams. That I know. was on you. It was a biggin'. That was a biggin'. That was, that was I a like biggin'. To, I like to make fun of you when you screw up, but I didn't do it that time. Yeah, it was I a held good, back. It was a good one. All right, but here's the thing. Let's give a little bit of background information on Mr. Julian Frank. Mr. Julian Frank basically was bringing in about $10,000 a month or a year. I think a year. A year. A year, yeah. It's 1960. I mean, $10,000 a month in 1960. Yeah, he'd been living large. But, okay, so he's making $10,000 a year. He then goes from making $10,000 a year to telling one of his friends he's bringing in $14,000 a month Wow! in 1960. So basically, who was Julian Frank? Well, according to our buddies over at Reddit, he was a strapping, handsome young man with wavy hair, a lawyer. He had a beautiful wife who was an ex-model, two small children, lived in Westport, Connecticut, and commuted to his small office in Manhattan. Some of the other commuters had actually stated that he was a first-rate bridge player. Just like Peter Griffin, he was very loud and boastful. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, one of the ladies that was on the, I guess, in the commuting pool with him stated that he gave me the impression of being a young man in a hurry, very ambitious, very driving, very smart. Some of the others would state that he often talked about dreaming of dying in a plane crash one day. Before 1960, like we had previously said, he was only earning $10,000 a year. Um, then all of a sudden he had basically struck it rich, making about $14,000 a month. He moved out of a $20,000 home into a $45,000 home. He talked casually of dropping $600,000 in the stock market. 
$14,000 a month at that time is amazing amount of money. I would love to make $14,000 a month in today's time. I wouldn't mind it at all. Yeah, I'll take half of that. I, after taxes, I think I come down After taxes, it. yes, I would love to have half of that. After taxes, I think I pull down about three. Yeah. $3,000 a month, which... If you just pulled down half of what he was making after taxes, well over two, th- well over two thousand is my bills. <laughs> I'm left with about nine hundred dollars a month to live off of. So, well, I'll take that in today's money. Your uh, YouTube subscriptions probably cost at least eight hundred <laughs> of that. He would also begin talking about huge insurance policies stating to friends that if I die my wife will be the richest woman in the world. Young Julian had some serious serious problems and they were circling the wagons if you know what I mean. As he boarded this flight that basically did away with his very existence he was being harassed by a lot of businessmen who had claimed that he had swindled them. And there are four claims that we will touch on. One, he had operated behind a phony company named J&P Factors Incorporated, whose only address was a mail drop. He had pocketed $8,025 in fees from a Phoenix firm, then reneged on his promise to raise a mortgage money. He had built associates in real estate deals out of some estimated $40,000. He had also swindled several thousand dollars, air quotes, out of businessmen who had retained him to help raise money for some Missouri hospitals. That's a low piece of shit. If you're going to swindle people for sure, under the guise of hospitals. At the time that he died, he was under investigation by the FBI, the New York District Attorney, and the New York Bar Association was considering disbarring his dumb ass. So, I don't know what he got tied up in, but it doesn't sound good. So, with all of the law enforcement moving in on him, it's estimated that he had pocketed hundreds of thousands of dollars in 1960 money that he was supposed to pay on multi-million dollar mortgage deals, but he kept postponing them. So basically, there was this unnamed Cuban banker, and it is rumored that since he was on the flight with Julian, there was some nefarious acts being committed. The banker was actually under surveillance as a black market dealer in, of all things, in the 1960s, why you would black market this is beyond me, but he was a black market dealer in pesos. <laughs> well, probably because pesos were probably easily to, very easy to counterfeit at that time. It is hypothesized that young Julian was a go-between for some shady Cuban investments. He took out a life insurance policy of $887,500 eight months before his trip to Miami. And the night that he left, he boasted that he was betting against himself returning from the flight. Well, at that time, 
in in the 60s it wasn't unusual for people to purchase life insurance before boarding a flight no in but... fact in 1960 airports had vending machines <laughs> that issued life insurance policies that were only good for the duration of the flight we're not saying that you might die but we're saying that here's a piece of paper in case you do I mean, exactly. I mean, I mean. Well, here's the problem with the whole thing. If Frank's death is judged as a suicide, his wife isn't getting shit. Doesn't matter if he took out an eight hundred eighty-seven thousand dollars policy. She wouldn't get any, She probably would get enough to bury as a dumbass. But he died in a crash in, in a plane crash. But the prevailing theory is he blew himself up and brought down all of it in an act of suicide. I understand that, but do you think he's going to commit suicide? Oh no, no, no! I don't. No, you, I'm you just think saying. he's going to commit suicide and uh, take all these other passengers with him? I mean, that's just that's evil. When you think about it, that's just evil. It is evil. Uh, we will post a uh, picture of his, him and his wife. Um, she was a fashion model at the time, and she's pretty hot for nineteen sixties. Yeah, <laughs> I doubt he's got now. Some, he's got some big old Spock ears. All right, getting back to the nitty and the gritty. Julian Frank is a little shady, to be honest with you. As much as we blame uh, Julian Frank for what happened. We have to address the fact that two months earlier, on 11-16-1959, National Airlines had another plane, Flight 967, and it exploded slash crashed over the Gulf of Mexico. It killed all 42 people on board, and it was flying from Miami to New Orleans. Unfortunately, the majority of the bodies in the wreckage were never recovered. But it is believed by the FBI that the bomb was in luggage of a passenger named Dr. Robert Spears. Absolutely correct. And he, he had enlisted an ex-con to take his place. Just like Julian, Spears was extremely insured, and they suspected, the FBI, suspected that it was based on insurance fraud. Yes, they hypothesized that Taylor had boarded the aircraft with the luggage packed by Spears, and unbeknownst to Taylor, it contained a bomb. Spears himself was heavily insured. The FBI felt that his motive was insurance fraud, who had taken out over $100,000 worth of life insurance on himself. Yeah, and so we get back to the actual bombing of Flight 2511. So they take Frank's body and they do some testing with the FBI laboratories. And the test results come back and state that many of the wire fragments that were found in Frank's body came from the seats on his right-hand side. The carpeting and some low-carbon steel found on the plane. One of the dismembered fingers that were recovered, suspected to be of Frank's, was embedded in the faceplate of a travel alarm clock. Wow. Yeah. They also state that a life jacket from Cure Beach found with parts of a flight bag embedded in it tested positive for nitrate residue. 
a black crusty residue on Frank's right hand was found to be manganese dioxide, a substance found in dry cell batteries. In addition to all of this evidence they collected from Frank's body, there were samples of residue taken from the air vents and a hat rack located on the right side of the aircraft near the leading edge of the wing that contained sodium carbonate, sodium nitrate, and a mixture of sodium sulfur compounds. The actual investigation board, the Civil Aeronautics Board, or CAB, concluded that the severity of Frank's injuries and the numerous particulates found embedded in his body could only be attributed to his proximity to the explosion. The chemical compounds detected in the area around the explosion were consistent with those generated by a dynamite explosion. The manganese dioxide samples collected from the seats near the focal point of the explosion and from Frank's body indicated that a dry cell battery was located very near to the explosive. The CAB determined that, based on the blast pattern, a dynamite charge had been placed underneath the window seat of row 7. The chief investigator for the CAB, Oscar Bakke, or Bach, testified before the Senate Aviation Subcommittee to all of this on January 12, 1960, the same day the FBI formally took over the criminal aspects of the investigation. Another huge W. T.F. When you look at the point of origin about the, the disintegration that was identified immediately to the right of the wing, you have to you have to you have to accept the fact that Julian Frank may have been a uh, innocent bystander. Innocent bystander, because look at the fact that when you board a plane. You either put your your uh, carry-on bag above you, or if you have a personal item, you put it in the seat in front of you. So I can't help but think that Julian Frank was just an innocent bystander, and the real bomber put the bomb underneath him. Yeah, that would make a lot more sense to the fact that his injuries that are documented. I mean, he clearly took the brunt of the explosion. Yes. If you, I mean, still, this case is classified as unknown. They don't know what brought the plane down. But when you look at him, he clearly had something happen to him that was not a plane crash. And it looks as if he experienced an explosion. He experienced the brunt of the explosion. He was sucked out of the plane. And his injuries indicate that he was the victim of an explosion. He's missing fingers. He's missing the lower part of his body. So if he's not responsible, then clearly the person behind him was. That, that That's my opinion. Because if you have a bomb... Your personal item on the plane is a bomb. You're going to stick it underneath the seat in front of you. 
just like most people do with their personal items. Some of the crazy facts around his body were as follows. One, uh, he had reddened areas of skin on his face. Two, he had dislocation of the right humerus without apparent fracture. Three, fragments of steel-colored wire embedded in the superficial flexor muscles of his right forearm. Four, partial ovulation of soft tissue on the right thumb, index finger, and middle fingers were partial denudning of sin of the fingers and palmar surface of the hand. Basically, all of that basically says it was just ripped apart. Five, the left hand was extremely mutilated with multiple lacerations and the absence of the distal portion of his fingers, basically the tips. Six, a small piece of brass was found embedded in the muscle mass below his left elbow. Seven, his left fibula missing and left tibia was amputated at the lower third. Extensive mutilation and fragmentation of muscle tissue manifested by tears in a longitudinal direction with the loss of a lot of skin. Eight, his right tibia was amputated a few inches below the condyles of the knee and the fibula amputated below its head. Below the upper fifth of the thigh posteriorly and below the lower thigh anteriorly, there were mutilations of muscles similar to that found on the lower left extremity. This all states that the bomb was underneath him. And then finally, x-ray examination revealed small opaque particles in his right wrist. These were found to be wire particles similar to those found in his right thigh. I mean, whether or not that Julian Frank is responsible for this bombing, all the evidence points to the uh, the point of origin of this bombing is at him. He's found with injuries that are not consistent with a plane crash. So we conclude that whether or not he's involved or responsible, he was the point of origin. Yeah. Um, one of the microscopic examinations states that the fractures of his fingers on the right hand showed splinters of bone in a random direction. And this would state or point to the fact that he was sitting over the bomb. Hmm. Um, other examinations of his right hand revealed numerous fibers adhering to the surface and embedded in the tissue. One fiber was observed protruding from the skin like a hair. The surrounding tissue was relatively free of foreign matter. And then upon pulling the single fiber, a whole bundle of fibers, about two millimeters in diameter, emerged from under the skin. The actual skin was retracted, leaving a pinpoint hole with an underlying pocket lined with clean skin tissue. Wow. Now, the FBI basically examined a lot of this and noted that metal wire was embedded in his right wrist. Uh, the brass was in his left forearm. 
they found some pale greenish brown threads about 10 centimeters long and balled up in fine fibers in the same forearm that the brass was found. Well, to me, the fact that his fingers are missing indicates to me that he was holding something. Yeah, and they stated, and this is odd, this may be another WTF moment, um, they found deep within the left leg, five small items were found. Uh, two pieces of a woman's hat ornament were found in the muscle tissue of the left leg. One was circular in shape, about an inch and a half in diameter and a millimeter thick. The other was 7.2 centimeters in diameter and a millimeter thick. Both were gray tan in color and were in coarse velvet-like material. Attached to the longer piece was a piece of a woman's hat veil, eight centimeters by two centimeters. Now, we had basically touched on the fact that when they investigated the wreckage of the fuselage, they found four human bone fragments. And they suspected that it was a, these bone fragments were from the tibia or a femur. A fragment of bone 10 and a half inches long was found at, they state, quote, station 350 in the hat rack area. The bone was identified as left fibula, distal end, with the distal articulation still intact. The tissue attached to this bone fragment were pieces of olive drab cloth, a brass metal plate, similar to the front brass retainer plate of a West Clock's Trevette alarm clock and miscellaneous foreign material. A lot of theories point to the fact that since Frank's body was found 16 miles from the main wreckage, it would show that some type of explosion happened in the cabin. And also, the examination of the fuselage in detail indicated that forces within the cabin wall failed from within, not from the exterior. Uh, Mr. Frank's body showed injuries sustained in nature that were not the type normally associated with an aircraft accident. The existence of an explosive force in close proximity to him indicated most of his injuries, especially the fact that his lower extremities were traumatically amputated. The tears, the longitudinal tears, uh, loss of skin, the splinters of bone in random directions would also indicate that he was over the blast. He was sitting on the explosion point. Yeah, whether he was responsible for that or not, it's very apparent that he was the first victim. Yes, I would, yeah, I would totally agree with that. Yeah. And also the fact that the CAB had noted that um, it appeared that he had actually stepped on a landmine is what his injuries would indicate. So you would have to state that he was the center of the explosion. Hmm. Um, this, All of this, all of the injuries, all of the fragments embedded in his skin suggested that an in-flight disintegration of the aircraft had occurred. This, along with where he was seated near the right wing, would also strengthen that hypothesis. Um, upon them positioning the mock-up of the plane, 
it was found that approximately 90% of the fuselage plating or the aluminum skin had been recovered and identified. Most of the missing pieces of the fuselage basically came from an irregular edge, triangular shaped area above and extending forward from the leading edge of the wing on the right side of the fuselage. There were several small fragments of upper fuselage shell totaling about 20 square feet that were found identified, but their small size had prevented the, the pieces being positively located within the area. Basically, it just disintegrated that little area that they are hypothesizing where it took place mm -hmm. at. Um, the flooring was relatively intact except for a small area about 50 inches inboard from the right side of the wing or the, the right wing. The missing area of flooring was comprised between seats row six and seven, which puts Mr. Frank right there in the center of it. Basically, we could just keep going on and on and on, strengthening the fact that he was sitting on the bomb. If, I mean, in fact, it was. I mean, it looks like he was responsible, but. But like you pointed out, even in the 1960s, you're not going to stow your bag under your seat because you can't get under your seat from the from where you're sitting. The person behind you would be responsible for sliding something under correct. your seat. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And now this is a little snippet from the actual CAB investigation and their conclusion. And they stated, and I quote, it is the board's conclusion that flight 2511 proceeded in a normal manner without operational difficulty, mechanical failure, or malfunction until shortly after passing the Carolina Beach H facility a short distance south of Wilmington. At approximately 0233, a dynamite charge was exploded, initiated by means of a dry cell battery within the passenger cabin at a point beneath the right extreme seat of row 7. Mr. Julian A. Frank was in close proximity to this charge when detonation occurred. The dynamite explosion severely impaired the structural integrity of the aircraft, and after making a wide descending right turn, it experienced in-flight disintegration and crashed one and a half miles northwest of Bolivia, North Carolina at 0238. It is therefore the conclusion of the board that the probable cause of this accident was the detonation of dynamite within the passenger cabin. But, I mean, if, if dynamite was responsible, why did most of the passengers have their life jackets on? Well, and I think that goes, yeah, I mean, I was going to say that that would go to, there was an explosion that blew out that right side of the fuselage. People freaked out, put their life jackets on because they're over the coast, and then they make I mean, that wide right, right turn thinking they could get away, and then it just disintegrated. That, that, that is 100% possible. If you have dynamite explode in your plane and just blow out the entire whatever side of the plane it was, are you going to have the, the forethought to put your life jacket on just in case you're having a, a, a water landing? No, I mean, I'm freaking out. I mean, you're going from New York to Miami. I mean, it's definitely possible that you're over the coast. But to have the the calmness and the forethought to put your life jacket on? Yeah, and I go back to 
what they stated was that West Clock's Trevet alarm clock, if that's used as a timing device, we're talking about 1960. This has to be premeditated, and you're not sure. I, I, I guess you're not sure of the explosion time. You, you give a general, you know, you set your alarm clock, the yeah. timing effort. But that doesn't take in consideration that the windshield was cracked on the original flight. Yeah. And then you've got, what was it, eight hours? Eight-hour eight delay. Are you going to have the forethought to set your timer that far in advance? No. I think you're looking at a situation where whoever sat behind Frank is the one that set that alarm clock. That if it was used as the timer, that's what detonated it. I mean, that's what makes sense to me, but we have all this information on uh, Julian. Yes, it is. And we have, I would like to know, were any of the other passengers as far as this, heavily investigated, such as Frank was? As far as this mystery goes, we have a pretty good amount of information on Julian, but we have no information on the person behind it. We don't even have a name. Nothing. I mean, nothing. I wonder if there is out there in the interwebs <laughs> a flight manifest that stated where people were seated. One of the other theories that was considered by the investigators was a collision with another airliner. And this is based on the crash site's proximity to the Wilmington Airport. So investigators go through the flight plan and other documents to determine if there were any other aircraft in the area. And they find, WTF, no. There are no other aircraft or any military aircraft slash missiles being in the air at the time. Well, you have to ask yourself... If they did collide with another aircraft, why would there be the need for the cover-up? Why wouldn't they just say, hey, you know, this happened. There was an accident. Yeah, like, and, and touching on that, the wreckage of Flight 2511 was basically confined to the crash scene at Bolivia and the little bit that they found at Cura Beach. And all of that was directed towards found to be part of that DC-6. Another theory presented after the crash theorized that an engine fire could have been the catalyst for the accident. Under this theory, one of the two engines on the right wing may have caught fire, exploding, and then shrapnel from that engine had punctured the fuselage, causing a basic explosive decompression sucking Julian out for the sake of an argument. Dumbass does punch the window out, but it doesn't suck him and that side of the plane out. This would have allowed for the crew to start making preparations for an emergency landing. Therefore, that gives you the life vest being put on. That would take into account the wide right turn that they made. There were some other inve or investigations. Some other theories stated that several days after the explosion, um, National Airline Pilots, who were members of the Airline Pilots Association, sent a telegram to the FAA stating that they 
were making the claim that the routine proficiency flights performed by pilots caused unnecessary stress to the aircraft. These test flights, which pilots underwent every six months, required pilots to put their aircraft through violent maneuvers, which could have weakened several parts of the airplane. You know, and so the CAB did investigate metal fatigue, explosive decompression, a propeller, a propeller blade. God, that why is that so hard to say? A <laughs> propeller, a propeller blade. Failing, striking, and rupturing the cabin, a malfunction in the cabin pressurization system, which basically led to cabin structural failure, some foreign objects striking the plane and penetrating the cabin, a lightning strike, fuel vapor, or an oxygen bottle explosion. However, the CAB was able to rule out each of those theories during their investigation. No reference is made in this report concerning the placing of the dynamite aboard the aircraft or of the person or persons responsible for its destination. The malicious destruction of an aircraft is a federal crime. After the board's determination that such was involved, the criminal aspects of the accident were referred to the Department of Justice through its Federal Bureau of Investigation. The board determines that the probable cause of the accident was the detonation of dynamite within the passenger cabin. And approximately, not approximately, but basically on January 20th, 1960, the FBI took control of the investigation and it remains open and unsolved. Another, what the fuck? We're left with two options. Either Julian Frank was personally responsible or he was a victim of circumstance. And, I mean, when you look at the facts of the case, he had probable cause. Based on his, the insurance. Yeah, to fake his own death. I mean, but was he willing and able to pull that off? I don't know. If I'm going to kill myself, I'm not going to do it with something that I'm deathly afraid I'm not of. Even, I'm not even talking about killing himself. I mean, putting a replacement... Somebody that took his place, somebody in that. I don't know. The question remains, who who bombed it? Why did they bomb it? Were they... Why did they take that plane down? That's the big question. Another question is, how shitty is National Airlines that you had another bomb happen, another flight brought down from bombings over the Gulf of Mexico... And then you have this one over the Atlantic. I don't know. It's, it's it's crazy. All right. Another theory, piggybacking off how shitty National Airlines' luck is, we know that Robert Speer had a hand in the first National Airlines bombing. Did he have ties to Julian Frank? Did Julian stumble across this information and think, hey, it's a good idea. I'm going to set my wife up. I'm going to get the hell out of here, let her have the kids, and she'll have enough money to basically live the rest of her life without any problems. Um, another theory is, and this comes from our boy, Mini-Me. He states that he thinks that Julian was the suicide bomber, and he thought that he would be over the sea when he did detonated the bomb but things went wrong. 
and he detonated it over land, blowing himself out of the plane and damaging the engine on the right side. This also would have, you know, helped in the fact, or not helped in the fact, but strengthened the fact that shrapnel was found in him from both the inside of the plane and the outside of the plane. Uh, the skin on the le on the right side was found at the original explosion site. His body was found nine miles from the explosion site, but 16 miles from the actual crash site. Minimi also states that the entire path of the crash site with the right wing falling off would cause the plane to swing on that right side arc, making the U-turn, and it would also result in a loss of speed, making the plane fall towards the crash site. He approximates that the victims had about seven minutes to prepare, therefore that's why they had their life vests on. They didn't know whether or not they were going to crash land into the sea. Julian may or may not have been the bomber. I just, I don't know, the severity of his injuries state that he's the focal point, but are you going to have the wherewithal to get on the plane, place the bomb under your seat by pushing it from the back of your seat? Or, Coach, like you said, is he just some poor bastard that basically had some shady shit situations going down at the time and the guy behind him decided, I've had enough of this life, and just slides the bomb under his seat? I mean, when you look at it from a distance... It's a horrible way to commit suicide. Horrible. Yeah, if I've got a, a, a fear of flying, I'm not going to go out that way. Well. I'm going to run my car off a ditch. Yeah, I think so. But, I mean, somebody on that plane decided that it was a good idea to just destroy many, many lives. And Julian, I think, seems to fit the profile. You know? I think he is an easy scapegoat. Well, I think his history, the backstory on him, makes him an easy scapegoat. I think so, but the real culprit may have, in fact, put the bomb underneath him. We're talking one row back. Yeah. I don't think Julian Frank's going to do this. I don't know. I, 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 I agree with you. I just don't feel like, I don't know, I may be totally wrong, though, because I've never been in that situation where the a outlook... A bomb exploded in a plane? Well, that too, yeah. but... That's also, not a good situation to be in. The fact that I can't see past the shitstorm that's currently happening. And I, if I'm going to commit suicide, I'm not taking 33 other people with me. I mean, even like you, I mean, like you had stated, like we had stated, he had taken out that $900,000 insurance policy months before. So, and again, it goes back to the fact that if it is ruled a suicide, the wife doesn't get, but I think like ten thousand bucks. Well, I mean, maybe he went through every channel he could think of to ensure that it was seen as a, you know, just a random bombing. When you think about uh, the time frame in the nineteen sixty, hijacking of planes was not a completely uncommon event. No, what time or what time? What year was? Uh, Cooper. Yeah. I'll have to look that up. Well, many me states that Franks could have been a sociopath or maybe criminally insane. I mean, I know enough lawyers that I would put 
90% of them in either category. D.B. Cooper was November 24th, 1971. Okay, so way before. Well, I mean, not too bad, but I mean, the hijacking of planes was not a very, like, an extremely uncommon event. No, it's not. I, I guess I go back to the fact that you're looking at a situation where you're going to commit suicide, but you're going to take 33 other people with you. That's not how normal suicides take place. I mean, some people some people feel that way. You know, if they're going to go, they're going to take as many people out as they can. But that goes back to, and this was before this term was used, but that's domestic terrorism. Yeah. I mean, taking as many people as you want to. Absolutely. I don't know. I just, I don't know. I guess the other thing is, that the one hang-up for me is why is Julian investigated more heavily than any of the other passengers? That's a very interesting question. Why did they not? And I'm sure they did. The FBI took over it. I'm sure they run through the entire passenger manifest. Well, I mean, honestly, because everyone was found at the crash site except him. Yeah. And he was found 16 miles away. And his body's just riddled with evidence from the explosion. Yeah. I mean, you you can think about it. Maybe he was responsible. Maybe he wasn't. But I can see him picking up a bag. And saying, hey, whose bag is this? And then, boom. True, but how far into the flight were they from, how far is it from New York to I mean, they, Wilmington? They, the crash was in North Carolina, so they were well over halfway. So you're looking at, what, three hours easy? So maybe he goes to, all right, let's chase this rabbit. Maybe he goes to the bathroom. Maybe he gets up, goes to the bathroom, comes back, and he sees a bag underneath his seat and he's like who the hell's bag is this he picks it up boom you think he in particular was his sister what did he know though that's right that's right and in the 60s she coach has just stated that he was assassinated based on the black market with the cubans and the pesos that is a good Hmm. hypothesis he was specifically targeted. Yes, because he was like a dumbass. And I will I will have to champion She Coach's theory here. Like a dumbass, the one rule of Fight Club is you don't, you talk, don't about talk about Fight Club. And he starts screaming from the mountaintops that I'm not I was making ten thousand dollars a year and now I'm making fourteen thousand dollars a month. And so they're like, Hey dumbass, we can't have this. Yeah, and many me did state that if he was a sociopath or he was in criminally insane, he would have taken everyone on that plane with him. And that is a good point. And his arm was blown off. But that still doesn't, if that was true, that doesn't explain the fact that he was found 16 miles away from the crash site. Unless you go to the fact that he, the explosion blew I, him out of the plane, or he well, beat on the window. I agree with that, but I see him, if that's true, that when the explosion happened, that had to mean everyone else on that plane was buckled in, including the stewardesses, or uh, flight attendants, rather, in this day and age, because everyone was found at the crash site. Except him. Except him. So that means, on a normal... Routine flight. Halfway and in, you're not going unless you're in, unless you're experiencing turbulence. Not everybody's going to be every buckled in. Every single person on that plane was buckled in, 
Yeah, weather reports from the from the day of the accident state that it was rainy, thunderstorms, turbulence. So they may have been all buckled in, but that doesn't explain him why he would unbuckle and pick up the bomb. Yeah, but I. Yeah, unless he was coming back from well, the, pi- I mean, the yeah, I, his, I guess the the, the, the chain his, of events would have been the fact that his fingers are missing, and found he was found sixteen miles away, yet his fingers were found on site. Would indicate to me that he was holding the bomb. The bomb. Yeah. But uh, I don't know. Maybe I've not only flown a couple of times, but if they have the mandatory seatbelt sign on, are you allowed to go to the bathroom? No, so unless he unbuckles to... All right, so let's go. Let's chase that rabbit. All right, the mandatory seatbelt signs on. Everybody's buckled in. They're experiencing turbulence. He's like gone into the fetal position, and he's like freaking out because we already know that he is afraid of flying. He's got his head between his knees, and he looks down, and there's something under his seat, and he's like, I didn't fucking put that there. So he unbuckles, goes around his seat, reaches down, and picks up that suitcase or whatever it is and at that moment boom we haven't said it but that's like what four five what the fucks yes 100 percent. but again this but, goes back to the flight or the flight the fact that flight 2511 is still unsolved this is a crazy ass case when you look at all the particulars well, the most surprising thing about this case was the fact that i never heard of it yeah, I hadn't either. Until she coach. She coach is such a great researcher. Yeah. All right, there is, and we will post these links to some of these articles. I will post the link that has the actual CAB's investigative report, but there's also some news articles from the 50-year anniversary of this flight that we will post. I guess the biggest thing is this crash set the standard for crash investigations that happen today. They reconstruct the uh, the actual aircraft. They go through and try to figure out what's going on with seating charts, where the explosion would be, that kind of thing. Mini-Me has stated that if the bomb only blew off his hand, then nothing would have happened, the plane would have landed just fine. Unless it blew out that right side next to the engine and took out the engine. Yeah. And you sure. decom- you decompressed the fuselage. I mean, clearly, the plane crashed. Well, no, 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 yes, we did know that. Going back to some of these articles, it's extremely, extremely crazy as to a lot of these theories that have been postulated all right so now we get into the great section of what do we think because everybody's hanging on every well, word that we have to be honest i'm confused as hell <laughs> well my theory is young frank has screwed the pooch and is a victim of circumstance I go back to one of the rabbit holes we chased. I think he's an idiot. I think he's an idiot lawyer. I think he run off at the mouth about how much money he was making. And unfortunately, he is deathly afraid of flying. 
they start experiencing turbulence over Wilmington or near Wilmington. He puts his little head between his legs to kiss his ass goodbye, and he sees this bag or suitcase under his seat. And in his panic state, he reaches under his seat. Instead of unbuckling, like I had previously said, he reaches down to see if he can pull it out. And as he moves it, the bomb goes off, basically taking his legs out, blowing his fingertips off, severing his forearm, blowing out the right side of the plane, taking out an engine, and then you can just extrapolate from there. Well, that is my theory. Okay. My question is, who bombed the plane then? Peter. Because they don't like Pete. people. Peter. <laughs> Peter. Peter. Because the plane crashed in a pig farm. The wreckage is found in a farmer's field near their pig pen. And that pig pen, it would have taken out the farmer's house and all them pigs, they would have been free. I think that uh, Julian Frank was just a victim of circumstance. And for whatever reason... The person behind him wanted to take that plane down. Whether it was for political reasons or personal reasons, it was a suicide by plane. Yeah, I can see your theory on that, but I would have to go with the fact that you are so mentally unstable you want to take as many people as you want to with you. I, I, that would be my my uh, my choice, yes. Yeah, I agree. I agree. All right, so like we have stated in previous podcasts, we're not here to give you answers. No. We are here to pose more questions than we should. Absolutely. We get into the great situation of calling out poor Kylie for having skanky beer. Yeah, she did. We had to go to another another establishment to get Dale's Pale Ale because she only stocked out of rent. Kylie, I'm going to need you to really concentrate on your uh, beer business and not your typesetting business. So, with that said, we get into our recommendations of the week. And our recommendation... Oh, I'm sorry. Mini Me has just pointed out that we've not gone over the Fucker Scale. Mm -hmm. And on the Fucker Scale this week is a great, I would say, a middle road what the fuck count. And we are looking at a total of... 17 WTFs. That's a good That's a good middle of the road WTF. That's not bad. Yeah. I mean, that points out the fact that this was a strange case. I mean, I am deathly afraid of flying. So, confronting this case was very difficult for me. <laughs> well, if you want to know the truth, when we first decided that this would be this week's episode, I was trying to get my wife to read... The synopsis on Wikipedia. Twenty-four, less than twenty-four hours before she was supposed to board a plane to to travel, and she was like, "No, I'm not." You know, the first line said it exploded in midair. No, you can read this shit on your own. So, with that, we covered the WTFs, and now we get into our recommendations. I would recommend that if you are interested in this case. Please, please follow the links that we will post on our Instagram and our Twitter. Do your own research. Um, and just chase the rabbits. I mean, that. I guess that's the biggest thing 
that we can put forth in this podcast is we will give you as many theories as we can and it's up to you the listeners to chase the rabbits because we just don't have time but please if you do chase rabbits give us a shout out on instagram or twitter at mysterious brews and let us know what you find you know there's nothing that says that we can't come back to this case with some viewer or listener suggestions so with that Arlo is done with his suggestions. Well, my suggestions, as anyone that has been following us for the past couple of weeks, is I'm a big fan of YouTube. No. I am indeed. So I'm going to recommend a web page, uh, a YouTube page called Rob Gavon, G-A-V-A-G-A-N. And if you've been a follower of YouTube... You would know him as Rob Dyke, but he had to change his name. Not the LGBTQTRSTVUWXYZ. <laughs> That's not why he changed his name, but he changed his name in order to uh, receive monetization from YouTube. He has years upon years upon years of fantastic videos. Everything you want to know, creepy, murder unsolved anything you want to reach out to he has it so please look at look up him and give him a follow at rob gavon previously known as rob dyke he has many years of videos that will blow your mind so that's my recommendation for the week with that said there's nothing left but deuces deuces